It's the Sleep Well, Stay Well podcast. Here we go with Malia Jacobson as your host. Hello and welcome to the Sleep Well, Stay Well podcast. I'm your host, sleep and health journalist, Malia Jacobson. Happiest of holidays to you and yours if you are celebrating anywhere in the world. I hope that you are safe and healthy and taking good care of yourself and those around you. I am off this week enjoying some time with my family at home, but I wanted to offer a gift to you, my listeners, and that is another listen to my episode on cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia or CBTI. This interview was from April and one of the first ones that I posted for this podcast. And since then, many, many of my guests have mentioned CBTI. It is the first line of therapy for insomnia. It is more effective than medications. It is a drug-free way to address insomnia. And as I mentioned in my last episode, more people are learning about CBTI and its benefits, but it can be tough to find a practitioner near you who has availability. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try, but it does mean that it can be tough sometimes to find and schedule an appointment with someone. And so for you, if you are struggling to sleep, if you have worries and anxieties like many of us do, this is for you. You can learn more about CBTI and possibly put a few of these techniques into practice over this holiday season so you can go into the new year more rested and refreshed and ready for 2021. I also wanted to mention that I have an article out in this month's Costco Connection magazine. It is called A System of Sleep, and it is about the connection between sleep and immune health, which is the topic that's the focus of this podcast. And the podcast is actually mentioned. Um, And so I would love for you to check that out. If you are a Costco member, you get it at home, mailed to you. And I will put it uh, as a link in the show notes so that you can see it online, even if you're not a member. Enjoy this interview with Dr. Vanessa Roddenberry and enjoy your holiday season. Bye-bye. Hello, Dr. Roddenberry. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so glad to have the opportunity to interview you again. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here and excited to talk with you. So what is life like for you these days in your part of the world? How has your work changed lately? Well, we're transitioned to telehealth. So um, that's been wonderful that we can continue to see clients that way. But it also means working from home. And I know most people the world over are struggling with that transition. So often it looks like a child (laughs) beating on the outside of a door uh, saying, mommy, I have to pee while you're trying to have a session. (laughs) But uh, grateful to be able to have sessions and and still struggling with the, the logistics of work from home. Yes, absolutely. I interviewed a physician for another project this morning, and he was simultaneously tutoring his daughter in math and answering my questions. And so uh, he was <laughs> saying, no, honey, it's division. No, no, you need to do that. You know, and, and I was like, okay, I guess that's, that's not for me. I'm not going to type down those numbers. But yes, it was <laughs> um, just part of the challenges that we are all navigating right now. And I am talking to you today about insomnia and specifically cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Now, 
Insomnia is a term that gets thrown around a lot. And so I wanted to start by having you define that term a little more precisely for us. What does insomnia really mean? Sure. So insomnia is essentially dissatisfaction with sleep and noticing that that has a negative impact on your daytime functioning. And by dissatisfaction with sleep, that is difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep. And that may be waking multiple times during the night or finding that you're waking earlier than you want to. And there are two sort of levels to insomnia. So you may find acute insomnia where um, you're experiencing a situational stressor and you're having difficulty getting to sleep or staying asleep a few nights to a few weeks. Um, and usually that will sort of come and go. It tends to be episodic. What happens um, is that if it sort of tips over into the chronic category, you find that you're having trouble sleeping at least three days a week for at least three months or more. Now, about 50% of adults are gonna experience occasional acute insomnia. The chronic level is rarer, so about one in 10 people uh, will be diagnosed with that. Okay, so about one in 10 people will have that chronic insomnia that's stretching on for three or more months. Um, and then the shorter term, acute insomnia is more related to a stressor in someone's life or a, a, an acute medical condition. Is that correct? Exactly. It's, it's something that's happened that has made it difficult to tamp down the worry at night or um, it's shifted our, our sleep schedule in some way. These tend to be situationally bound factors. Um, again, they'll, they'll come and go. Um, and so what happens is a lot of times we, we call it the insomnia threshold. There'll be something, um, and we'll talk about this in a second, but there'll be something that sort of um, causes the insomnia to hang around, usually even after that situational stressor has abated. Okay, got it. And as someone who specializes in working with people who are struggling with insomnia, are you seeing more of that second type, that acute insomnia related to a stressful event? right now in the midst of this global stressful event. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. We certainly are, um, you know, this, this is a global trauma, collective trauma that the world is going through and it's such a unique occurrence. And everyone has been asked to do these impossible tasks and make these giant life adjustments so quickly. Uh, you know, on a good day, any one of these changes would be a, a big obstacle for an individual, but we're seeing, um, you know, people and families having to shift sort of their entire life at professionally, personally. Uh, we see people not just trying to work from home in crisis mode, but work from home while trying to crisis school their children and get folks to focus on tasks without really any safety net or, or support there. And um, you know, we see a lot of people experiencing depression and isolation and, um, you know, it's tough because we have a lot of people that are isolated with uh, stressful other individuals in their life. So we might have um, someone at home with a partner with whom they don't get along or with whom there may be an abusive relationship. Um, a lot of individuals that have or are struggling with substance use issues or alcohol use problems, that is um, difficult for them. They're being triggered in a very unique way. And the support, the outlets for stress that people usually have at their disposal are uh, either 
not existent right now. They've, they've been closed down. So a gym, um, for example, or a coffee shop, that's not an option versus even, um, you know, connecting with your social support groups. Even though you can do it differently, it's not quite the same. So people are, um, are shifting and it's actually, it's been really refreshing and amazing to hear from our clients how people have been very resilient and are trying to find workarounds and workthroughs for these problems. But the very fact that they've had to do it at all is the big thing. So, you know, the, the fact that there has been a reason for this big adjustment is the reason we're seeing a lot more acute insomnia. Um, that actually kind of leads into a discussion of the, the model for insomnia. So I'm going to geek out with you for a minute and get kind of nerdy in the terminology, but sure. It, you know, I think it helps kind of make sense of why we're seeing this. So the, the model for insomnia is called the 3P model. And there are, you, know, you can think about it like a, a layer cake, essentially. There, there are three things that you need to be able to say, okay, we've got the ingredients here stacked enough to, to say we have insomnia. That first layer is made up of what we call predisposing factors. Now, these are things that do not cause insomnia in and of themselves, but they may increase the likelihood of sleep difficulty. So these are usually biopsychosocial factors. And by that, I mean, you know, it could be anything from inherited sleep problems, family history of poor sleep, social issues like learned sleep behaviors, um, psychological issues as a result of adverse childhood experiences or events. You know, thinking that, oh, I'm just a worrier or I have a personal history of, of sleep difficulty. Those are all things that are gonna kind of create that base layer of potential for sleep problems. So again, everybody has this. Everybody the world over has predisposing factors. What causes the problem is the second layer, the precipitating factors. So with precipitating factors, these are what we're talking about in the epidemic. Specifically, these are situationally based. They're not fixed, but you can think of them as the triggers that tip you over the insomnia threshold and can take you from, you know, oh, sometimes I don't sleep well to I've had a bout of acute insomnia. These could be things like medical issues, uh, you know, worry over a medical issue that, that you could have, like worrying about, am I going to contract the, the virus? Does someone I love have it? Psychiatric issues, so it could be anxiety, depression, PTSD, things like that. Um, and then throw in just the, the general blend of stressful life events that people experience. Could be, you know, the birth of a child, switching jobs. In this context, specifically having to parent during an epidemic or um, trying to work from home when you're not set up from it. for right. it. financial concerns. And, yeah. Absolutely. So that, that causes the initial insomnia. What happens is when we realize we're having this difficulty, we try to fix it ourselves. And that leads to the, the third level, which is perpetuating factors. So the perpetuating factors are things like staying in bed too long, trying to make up for lost time, napping, or you know, having a lot of learned negative associations with the bed that we, we've become conditioned to, 
Um, so for example, associating the bed with wakefulness or anxiety. And also just the, the way our thoughts change. So negative changes in cognitions in terms of um, how we think about our sleep ability or um, our sleep environment. So we develop those behaviors and they essentially maintain and exacerbate the insomnia. And what's really interesting is even after that second layer, the situational stressors disappear or remit, these perpetuating factors stay in place. So during COVID-19, we see a lot of behavioral changes like not going outside as much, right. um, you know, increases in, in worries and um, you know, just general big shifts in sleep schedules and sleep hygiene. And, um, you know, all of that is going to perpetuate the, the sleep problems that come with the situational stressors. Right. So we do really sort of have the perfect storm for acute insomnia right now during this pandemic. But what you're saying is that even after the pandemic lifts and and life goes more or less back to normal, the insomnia that people have experienced can persist. You're 100% correct, and, and that's what we're anticipating. The good news is that that third layer is imminently treatable. You know, while we're seeing a lot of increase in, in factors related to the second and third layers, those perpetuating factors are, are very workable because they're behavioral, they're not situationally based. So even though they may um, be more intensified and hang around for people, there are definitely things they can do about them. Okay, great. And let's talk about that. Can you talk about how cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia or CBTI can help? And how does it differ from other ways that someone might approach insomnia, like say, taking a medication? Absolutely. So CBTI is going to address exclusively those perpetuating factors of insomnia. And that is really how it is different from other approaches. For example, a medication is going to be kind of a good band-aid on the wound, the situation, but it's not going to cure the infection. So CBTI is as effective as medication in the short term, but it's also more effective in the long term because the underlying issue is not going to persist. And what we know about medication is that there are a lot of um, you know, unpleasant pieces that sort of track with that. So you can have increased tolerance. You can um, have a lot of negative side effects. It doesn't usually work long-term and um, you know, it really isn't meant to. It's often meant to be, hey, take this for a few nights, kind of bounce back and then call it good. But what happens is a lot of people become very dependent on medication and it affects their confidence and their ability to be a good sleeper. So what we often see with CBTI is that someone if they're willing to try it, they, they reestablish a relationship with their body and they experience this kind of renewed confidence in their ability to sleep. And that's a really neat thing to see. We also know that other approaches that may be included as part of CBTI are not effective as a freestanding approach. So for example, just working on sleep hygiene, while it's really beneficial, isn't quite enough just working on relaxation isn't quite enough. Now, those are definitely part of CBTI. We'll talk about things that you can do to improve the likelihood that sleep happens. Everything from addressing your sleep environment and you know, the amount of light that you're getting, um, how you can help relax your body when you're laying down for sleep, 
But there's some other important components of CBTI that really make a difference. Some of those would be cognitive restructuring. So we're going to look at what are you telling yourself about the bed or sleep or your ability to sleep? And we're going to identify some problematic thoughts that might be keeping you stuck and causing the insomnia. We're going to challenge them and see if we can help you think differently about those issues. Other components of CBTI would be sleep restriction. This involves looking at the, the amount of sleep that you're actually getting a night versus the sleep window that you're giving yourself. So how long is your body physically in the bed versus how much of that time are you actually asleep? So a lot of times we work with folks to, to recalibrate that ratio a little bit to help them use their time in bed more efficiently. Another piece, speaking of the bed, is stimulus control. So we want to help folks look at the learned associations they have with the bed in their bedroom. And that looks like only using the bed for sleep or sex and really working hard to, to tighten that association. So no snacking in the bed, no TV in the bed. You know, working no, in the bed. <laughs> no working in the bed. Exactly. Right which is really hard right now because I know space in people's homes is limited and they're, they're trying to find new places for offices and places to, to go where kids can't find them sometimes if they're on a call. So really doing our best to try to help with that. Um, and then finally, you know, helping them uh, regulate their circadian rhythm by making sure they get enough light and exercise and things like that. Um, but these, these all fit together and kind of dovetail to help make sleep more possible. Okay, thank you for explaining that. That's really helpful. When it comes to CBTI, can you talk about the effectiveness? I think that's one of the more surprising things, at least it was to me when I first started learning about this, is just how effective it is compared to some of the other treatments out there for insomnia. Absolutely. It's, it's the first line treatment um, that is recommended for insomnia. And we know that about seven out of 10 people are going to get positive results from it. Often, if we see someone that's struggling to get, uh, you know, a positive result, it could be anything from, um, you know, maybe they're, they're not willing to give up a sleep medication, or they have a lot of other comorbid issues that are complicating the matter. Um, and sometimes folks just aren't ready and it's difficult to implement the changes. But for our clients that we see who go into CBTI with, you know, high motivation and willingness to implement the, the protocol, it works very well. Yes, that it is. And that's very promising. Is there anything that people are usually surprised by when they first start this therapy with you? Absolutely. I mean, we, we have folks that have not been sleeping well for a really long time. And so when we're explaining the treatment overview and we get to the part that involves the schedule restriction, we usually get that deer in the headlights look where someone is, is freaking out saying, what do you mean we might change my sleep schedule? I have to stay in bed as long as I can. And so helping them learn that staying in bed overly long actually is probably doing you, it is doing you a disservice, is uh, kind of a revelation. And so we sort of have to help them move past that initial shock and fear 
And we do that through psychoeducation and supportive listening and until they feel ready to make that change. But I think once they do, it's so eye-opening and so refreshing. Uh, you know, I've had so many clients say, when I first came through the door and you told me that you were going to shrink my, my sleep window to the time I was actually using, I thought that would never work. And I can't believe it did. And I'm actually sleeping. Because the, the principle is to say, if you're, for example, if you're in bed for you know, 10 hours, but you're only asleep for five, well, that extra five hours is, is not helping you learn to associate sleep with the bed. So when we shrink your sleep window down to that five hours, we're doing that based on the evidence we have from having you keep a sleep diary, for example, the week before we would start treatment. And so there's a method to the madness. We're not doing it to torture anyone, but that, that is a really difficult um, pill to swallow initially. <laughs> Right. Yes. Especially when people are exhausted and they've been struggling for a long time. Um, how long does it usually take for people to begin seeing positive results with this? Sure. So, you know, the wonderful thing about CBTI is that some of these changes you can implement right away. So when we start out with psychoeducation and some sleep hygiene pieces, sometimes those changes make a, a big difference initially. And you know everybody's different. I've had clients who have right off the bat noticed a big change in one or two sessions just because they are addressing this. It's no longer kind of the elephant in the room. And they've been able to make some behavioral changes in terms of um, you know, when, when they're getting in bed, keeping us at bedtime, getting out of bed on time with an alarm, not oversleeping. Um, getting out of bed if they can't sleep after 20 minutes. So some of these things are, you know, really helpful right off the bat. But, you know, for the average person, I would say that around session three, we really start to see the change happen. I warn everybody that it's, it's really sleep boot camp. So it can be a bumpy road at the very beginning. Usually the first week is hardest because you're, you have so much anxiety about the changes you're making, even though they're going to be beneficial. Sometimes the anxiety, that sort of secondary layer of anxiety keeps you up. So we're, we're working through that first week and usually around week two and three, we start to see some changes. The other great thing about CBTI is that you are having your clients track their sleep every week, every day of the week. So when we meet, we're essentially able to calculate sleep efficiency and say, okay, you had a, a sleep window, how well did you use it? And we're acknowledging that there are a lot of different factors that can influence that, and we're able to problem solve if we're not getting the result we want, but we are keeping an eye on that watermark every week so we can titrate appropriately. And I think that's part of why it's so effective and effective sooner rather than later. I mean, the protocol is typically between uh, you know, six to eight sessions, so we, we see pretty quick results. That is great. Thank you for explaining that. Right now and probably in the future, telehealth is a big part of how we're all interacting with our healthcare providers. And how is that affecting how you're working with your patients? And what might somebody expect if they are struggling with insomnia, they want to give CBTI a try right now, and they are looking at interacting with their healthcare provider via video or phone, over that six to eight appointments that you just mentioned? Sure, that's a great question because I think it's so important to not wait. I mean, we certainly see clients that have struggled with insomnia for 
years, if not decades, and they certainly are able to have a positive experience with CBTI, but they didn't have to wait that long. And right, so, right. you know, if, if someone is experiencing sleep problems right now, I would definitely encourage them to explore the telehealth option with something like CBTI because it's very psychoeducational and can be imparted very easily via telehealth. It's actually probably one of the treatments that's going to have a really seamless transition to telehealth. So with CBTI, we often give out a lot of handouts and um, you know worksheets that support and complement the, the protocol. So what would a CBTI session look like right now with telehealth? Pretty similar to the way it would look in the room. You know, we're we're gonna go over the numbers from the previous week. Okay, what's your sleep efficiency? And we're gonna be able to talk about the, the topic for the day it tends to be a little bit more regimented than some other types of therapy because it is an evidence-based treatment. There is a protocol that we follow every time. So a client could have a workbook on their end and I would have you know, the same on mine. So we're both following along and I'm giving them the handouts that they would be looking at just as I am. So in, the, in that sense, nothing really changes as it would from an office visit. And I think that that's part of the, the beauty of a manualized treatment is that it does allow for um, you know, such great material to be passed on to the client, even if we're not together in person. Right, that makes sense. And is this something that has been shown to be effective with children? And how might that approach differ if you are working with a child? Sure. So I'll preface this by saying that my specialty is in treating adults, and I I don't provide CBTI for children, but uh, what we know about it is that it is effective in terms of the studies that we've seen. There's not as much research on insomnia in children and using CBTI as a treatment as there is for adults, but there is evidence that it works. I think with younger kids, there are going to be a lot of different issues that affect why they're having sleep problems, and so... Um, you know, you're really going to take into account their developmental stage. For example, um, if you have a, a very young child, you're going to look at, do they have the ability to self-soothe? And, you know, it could be, is there a parent staying in their room until they sleep, or, you know, either rocking them to sleep or nursing them to sleep. With slightly older um, kids, you know, toddlers, you might see them experiencing a lot of desire for autonomy. And so they may have trouble with you know, getting into bed and falling asleep because they're, they're really kind of pushing those limits. Whereas with teens, they're going to be um, really into screen time. So they've got their phones and their tablets and right. the blue light from any flat screen is going to interfere with your circadian rhythm. In addition to the fact that if they may be staying up late to watch something or talk to friends, then it's going to in- interfere with their general sleep schedule. So Considering all of these pieces and also really working to bring parents alongside too in terms of psychoeducation and engaging them and helping kids implement the protocol at home, those would be some some big differences from adult treatment. Right. So it would be more of a family education model. Yeah. Well, what if somebody is listening to this and they are interested, but they're not ready to jump in with the whole six to eight appointment Um, course of treatment. 
are there CBTI-based exercises that they could try or little snippets that they might be able to employ on those nights or during those phases that they are having trouble? Absolutely. One of the most important things, it, it goes back to the stimulus control piece. So being able to just have a positive association with your bed. If you find that you're struggling with sleep and it's not coming, don't stress about it. Don't try to make it happen. Get out of bed after about 20 minutes if it just hasn't come. So go do something boring, have some herbal tea, do a crossword, listen to a meditation. And when you feel sleepy, try to get back in bed. And if you know you can't fall asleep, then stay out of bed, do something soothing until you're sleepy enough to try again. But really taking that pressure off of yourself and saying, hey, if sleep comes, it'll come. If I can't sleep, it's money in the sleep bank and I'm going to sleep well the next night. So it's releasing a little bit of that expectation and pressure on yourself and knowing that you're reserving that bed for when you feel sleepy and really not trying to sleep. So sort of taking that paradoxical approach and saying, I'm, I'm going to lay here and I'm going to rest and I'm not trying to fall asleep. And if it comes, it comes. So those are some of the principles that we would work on that tend to be a little bit lighter and more doable. But another thing that anyone can try is just general sleep hygiene. So it sounds overly simple, but it's really powerful to have a set bedtime and a set wake time. So really just trying to help manage your schedule and have a wind down time leading to that in bed time. Right. It is so beneficial to have a set a set wake up time and a set bedtime. And I think all of our schedules are in a little bit of chaos right now, but that is certainly something that can be so beneficial to so many people and so simple, you know, it's just one of those disciplined things, at least for, for me. <laughs> right. It, it always tends to be one of the first things that falls off our, our plate, but you're right. It's one of the easiest to, to kind of get back on it. Right. And just uh, from a tactical standpoint, you talked about taking the pressure off with regard to getting stressed in bed when you can't sleep, tossing and turning. What do you tell your uh, people that you work with about having a clock in the bedroom? Because sometimes I think that that is just something that adds to that pressure, right? You're, you're watching it. You're watching the minutes tick by. Is it advisable to maybe take that clock out and not have a timepiece that you can see while you're trying to sleep? Um, what's your approach to that? Yeah, that's a great question because you're right. It, it is a huge source of stress. And a lot of times when someone's really trying to be dutiful, for example, about getting out of bed, if they can't sleep, they want to make sure that they've given themselves enough time but not gone over. So I always tell folks, hey, don't clock watch. You're going to stress yourself out needlessly. Turn your alarm clock around. Or as you mentioned, you, you can even remove it from your room. If it's outside the door, you'll still hear it in the morning, you'll still get up, but take away that temptation to just glance over and kind of judge yourself that, oh, another minute's passed or two minutes have passed and I'm still not asleep. Everybody right. has a pretty good internal sense of 20 to 30 minutes. And so it doesn't have to be perfect. The, the key is to just not, your, not let yourself languish in the bed unduly. So if, if you give it your best guess, if it's 19, if it's 25 minutes, either is okay, but just right around then. Right, right. Thank you. So when it comes to managing our health and managing our sleep, I know we're all juggling a lot right now. If there's one thing that someone could do to help improve their sleep, 
what might that be? I think during this epidemic, there have been a lot of, well, there, there's a lot of tendency for folks to have big shifts in diet. And I've seen a lot of clients consuming mass quantities of caffeine. And you see a lot of folks who are also um, drinking a lot of alcohol either yes. to you know, help relax at night or mm -hmm. because, hey, all bets are off, the, the schedule's different, maybe they're, they're furloughed or not working. And so they think, yep. oh, I'll have a cocktail in the afternoon. Working and through the stockpile. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And either one of those is going to cause a problem, but it's a really easy thing to change. So it doesn't mean you have to cut it out completely, but you just want to moderate. Caffeine's going to make it really hard to fall asleep. So you want to mitigate that and not drink caffeine past, you know, early afternoon and be aware of hidden sources of caffeine like dark chocolate or, or herbal tea. The other piece, you know, the alcohol piece, a lot of times we think, well, I'm, I'm really nervous. I've watched the news and now I, I can't wind down. I'm, I'm so scared of this COVID thing. I'll have a cocktail or I'll have a glass of wine. And while it may help you fall asleep initially because it's a depressant, it will interrupt your sleep eventually because it interferes with your sleep rhythm. So you'll wake up after a short amount of time and that tends to create a lot of anxiety about, can I get back to sleep? So the, one of the easiest things you can do for yourself is to try to moderate those two things. And if you're feeling anxious or you, you need to feel energized, try to get outside, get some fresh air or get some exercise because not only are those good alternatives to the caffeine or the alcohol, but they also in and of themselves will help you sleep better. Right. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes, I think there's been a lot of talk about um, cocktails and and lots and lots of food and comfort foods and caffeine. And yes, I think it's easy to make big changes to your diet and your daily habits without really realizing it very much because we are in such an unprecedented situation. So thank you for bringing that up. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention that people might want to know about CBTI? I think one of the most important things that I would want a potential CBTI client to know is that you can do it. It's so interesting. We have so many people that have relied for years on sleep medicine or have just struggled on their own and kind of white knuckled it every night. And they really are harboring a fear that it won't work for them, that they're the one outlier. You know, everybody else has something they can do, but it won't help me. And right. Inevitably, once they implement these pieces of the protocol, they find, oh my gosh, I can actually sleep. My body knows how to do this. And they, again, they rebuild that relationship with their ability to sleep, with you know, their body's natural inclinations. And it's such a wonderful thing to see that confidence come back. So even though it might feel scary, and even though you might feel depleted and kind of cognitively behind the eight ball due to sleep problems, it can work for you. It will work if you work it. Right, right. Absolutely. And I love that our body does know how to do this. Our body does know how to do this. You know, we just sometimes need a little more support. Well, where can people find out more information about you? Sure. So um, they can look me up on my group practice website, bradapsych.com. Well, thank you again for sharing your time and your expertise with us today. This was really helpful. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. It's the Sleep Well, Stay Well podcast. Now you know. Thanks for checking out the show.